following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Before we get into the message today, there's two things we need to cover, both of them simply related to what's happening currently nationally and internationally. Uh, first of all, the president has asked that today be a national day of prayer for the coronavirus issue. And so I'd like for us to be able to join into that. I found a prayer from Colin Sinclair, who is a pastor in Scotland, and I was reading it this morning, and I thought, this is a really good prayer. So I just want to, as part of our praying together, pray this actually with churches in Scotland this morning on behalf of what's happening around the world and here in the United States. So if you would join me in prayer. Living God, we put our faith in you because you have proved your faithfulness time and again. We reaffirm our love for you because you have never let us go. We thank you that you are not distant from us, but have drawn near in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. He has shared our life, tasted our death, and defeated it. He understands our worries and our fears. Help us respond as your children now. We pray for this pandemic spreading across the world, remembering all who have lost loved ones, and praying for those who are seriously ill at this time. We uphold the healthcare system as it responds to this added pressure. We pray for doctors and nurses and all in the caring professions who work to help and support people as best they can. We remember the doctors and the scientists working behind the scenes trying to understand the virus better and create an effective remedy. We pray for our political leaders to guide us wisely on how we should respond and what actions we should take. May this crisis bring out the best in us, not the worst. Help us to live by faith, not by fear, to build bridges, not barriers. May we not forget our responsibility to one another, especially to any who are particularly vulnerable. We pray for those who have been laid off or whose hours have been cut for those facing financial hardship as individuals and business owners. We pray for those making contingency plans for home-based work or for childcare or for exams. May our circumstances, good or bad, not blind us to the loss or hardship of others. May our congregations find new ways of loving each other through this time. May we not forget our faith, but draw strength from it. God of grace and God of mercy, Hear our prayers at this time. Strengthen us by your spirit so that we may carry on our lives as best we are able, looking out for others, showing love in action, being faithful in prayer, and bringing encouragement, hope, and peace, always trusting in you, our rock and our redeemer. These prayers we bring to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The second part of this is that I'd like us to put our money and our resources where our prayer is. So it's important right now that we be considering how we take care of our church family. If you have money, if you have resources, and if you have time, this is the time to be generous. So a number of ways this can happen practically here at our church and for our church family. Number one, if you would like to bring in food items for people, the church will be open. We'll be putting those food items in the lobby area. This will be open to people from our church who are under financial hardship now for reasons I mentioned earlier in the prayer. Um, this is a significant issue. Best I could see, there's going to be a real economic ripple effect. So a very practical way, bring in food like 
good food, not Twinkies. Second, you could bring in gift cards for places like Myers or Walmart or gas stations, local businesses. Um, we will keep them here in the office, and as people have need, we will be able to distribute them. You can contribute financially. And I might add, not just part of regular offerings, because we do still need to pay the bills, but also extra money given to the deacons for the sake of being able to distribute it to people in our church who have need. Another possible way could be volunteering for people, especially if there are those who are at risk and would like to stay home and try to avoid crowds. We may have opportunity for people to volunteer to go shopping for them, for example. So you can drop drop-offable stuff here at the church. We will be keeping it here in the lobby or in the office and helping people as they have need. You can contact me or Pete Teal if you have any questions. If you're not sure how to contact us, go to the church Facebook page. Our contact information is there. Uh, also, our deacons are working to contact people in the church that we know are in situations where they could possibly use some assistance. If they don't contact you, we're not trying to ignore you, please contact us if you are in need of any kind of help. We want to be accessible and helpful at this time. Uh, if we end up with a lot of extra food or gift cards or money that we don't need for this crisis, our deacons will be responsible for making sure to manage that wisely and disperse it as they always have on behalf of our church. All right. Uh, we're going to continue with our series because life does go on. So I'll make a note. This is part two of we're talking about looking at marriage and sex and sexuality through a biblical perspective. If you are watching this on Facebook, um, Scott's going to be posting a link to notes that should show up if it's not there already. So you could follow along with notes if you would like to while you're listening. Also, you can post questions. If there's something that comes up as I'm making this presentation... If you would post a question on Facebook, um, Scott can show me those questions at the end of this sermon, and I could try to interact with them. We could do a little bit of a message plus, perhaps, if you would like, unless they're really awkward questions, and then suddenly we will cut the feed and we won't know what happened. Once again, you can watch this on our website at clgonline.org watch. All right, here is our statement of faith, our church's statement of faith on this issue. We believe that God wonderfully and immutably creates each person as male or female. Together they reflect the image and the nature of God. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman as delineated in scripture. It is intended to be a covenant by which they unite themselves for life in a single exclusive union ordered toward the well-being of the spouses and designed to be the environment for the procreation and upbringing of children. I'm going to move from one quote to another because this particular quote from a writer named Christopher West kind of sets the table for what we're talking about today. He notes, If we are made in the image of God as male and female, and if joining as one flesh as a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church then our understanding of body, gender, and sexuality has a direct impact on our understanding of God, Christ, and the church. The body is not only biological. The body is also theological because it tells a divine story. It does so precisely through the mystery of sexual difference and the call of the two to become one flesh. 
This means that when we get the body and sex wrong, we get the divine story wrong as well. So here's a brief overview of this part of the divine story, starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation. So the Bible opens with a Trinitarian God acting as creator. In our creeds, we talk about God as the maker of heaven and earth. So in Genesis, think of the root word gen, God is a generative God. And this generation comes from his essence and from his being. He's a Trinitarian God, what John Paul called an infinite communion of persons. We're going to come back to this terminology of communion a little bit later. God creates the imago Dei, that's us, the image bearers, who are told to be in communion. And for the word communion, for the sake of this discussion, think common union. When we take the emblems, when we do communion, it is reminding us of our common union with God and with others. Throughout the Old Testament, God compares his relationship with Israel to a marriage. Isaiah 62.5 says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, God says, I'm going to marry you, and this time it'll be forever in righteousness and justice. Our covenant, we're going to come back to that word also, our covenant will reflect a loyal love and a great mercy. Our marriage will be honest and truthful, and you'll understand who I really am, the eternal one. Now we fast forward to Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam. So he leaves the home of his father in heaven. He leaves the home of his mother on earth. And just like we read in Genesis about a husband and wife leaving their home and cleaving to the other, we see Jesus in Ephesians 5. He's leaving these homes for the sake of his bride, which is the church. Romans 6.5 reminds us that Christ will become one with the church. And then because of Christ, we become one with each other. That's common union. And in addition, we make disciples. There will be a generative nature to this union. And then the book of Revelation describes the final wedding feast of God and his people. And it's the lamb that's Jesus and his bride. So we see this divine story with the language or the imagery of marriage from start to finish. So it seems important, I think, that we understand how marriage and how sex, and by that, that, that I mean male and female, the act of sex, how they all contribute to this story. So I'm going to offer a statement that's going to have three parts that we're going to unpack this morning to better understand this. First of all, God intends sex to be an act of covenantal initiation and renewal in what I'm going to call a dualitarian union that points us toward the nature of God and Jesus' love for the church. So I'm going to start actually with the middle part of this. What do I mean when I say dualitarian union, and why does this matter? Give me like three minutes to do a little bit of philosophy. Christians are essentialists. This is what this means. As imago Dei, or as image bearers, we're male and female. And this together points toward what God is like. In Genesis, God says, let us make male and female in our image. There's something about the necessity of both male and female as the visible representation of God, in a sense, that is important. We see this in combination. Now, because the God of Genesis is generative, it shouldn't be any surprise that we, his image bearers, are essentially gendered. Gender is how we generate life. It's built into our genitals and our genes, and it's passed down through our genealogy ever since Genesis. 
I think you could see on the screen, I'm trying to emphasize that root word in all of these, there's a common story being told. So the means by which we have the inherent capacity to generate life reveals our essential nature. That's what we mean by essentialism. Together, men and women reflect the essential essence and nature of the God who made us. And then, we as image bearers, we experience a type of communion or common union during sex. There's other ways in which we experience communion, but the focus of this series is on sex in particular. We aren't just animals. As Christopher West says, animals are able to mate, I mean, they can have sex, but they're not able to enter into communion. Only persons are capable of the gift of self that establishes a common union. So, in the act of sex and in marriage, the biblical idea is that you see two becoming one. That's the idea of cleaving. We're not an infinite communion of persons. We're a finite communion of persons, and yet there's an echo of something about God in that moment. So let's go back in Genesis, look at this common union of Adam and Eve. So when Eve arrives on the scene, the language of Genesis, uh, some translations don't do justice. To, they'll, they'll say rib, but it's not doing a great job of catching. No, this is like flesh and blood. This, there's a separation that had taken place. And when a man and a woman come back together in common union, that's the cleaving. This is the idea of the oneness. And there's a Hebrew word that's used for this. This word is ikad. I hope I'm saying that right. E-C-H-A-D. This is the becoming one in marriage. This is also used in the most famous of the Jewish prayers, which is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is ikad. And I don't think this linguistic connection is accidental. We're supposed to be seeing this moment or this event in human relationships as pointing towards something about the nature of God. I'm going to quote Tim and Kathy Keller from The Meaning of Marriage. You're going to see them show up a couple more times this morning. There is a hint that the relationship between male and female is a reflection of the relationships within the Godhead itself, the Trinity. Although all people, men and women, are bearers of God's image, resembling him as his children and reflecting his glory and representing him as stewards over nature. It requires the unique union of male and female within the one flesh of marriage to reflect the relationship of life within the triune God. As Genesis says, male and female are like opposite each other, both radically different and yet incomplete without each other. God's plan for married couples involves two people of different sexes making the commitment and sacrifice that is involved in embracing the other and performing different roles in the act of creation, which brings about deep unity because of the profound complementarity between the sexes. This tells us something about the relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think there may even be echoes of the church here in that the church is one body with many parts. When Scott spoke a couple weeks ago, he talked about the corpus of the church. Did I get that word right, Scott? The corpus of the church. Um, so when people get together or when churches commune, you have corpi, corpuses. I'm not sure what all the plurals are there, but I suspect there's an idea here of communion once again. Obviously not a sexual communion. 
The, the church is not a sex cult like many of the religions would have been back at the time the Bible was written. This is, a, this is an analogy of a spiritual reality of communion. This is why two people become one flesh, to reveal, proclaim, and anticipate the eternal union of Christ and the church. There will be no marriage in heaven, not because it will be deleted, but because it will be eternally completed. Union will be complete. All the representations that we see here on earth, including the way it's represented by the act of sex and the institution of marriage, will find its completion in heaven. Someone this last week pointed out a word to me that I actually haven't studied for a while, but I remember in Bible college, this word was a big deal. The word is koinonia. It was also a granola that we once ate, at least in the Mennonite world, uh, but that's not important now. So koinonia is a word that doesn't often get a lot of attention in the New Testament. And according to the New Testament Greek lexicon, koinonia means fellowship, association, community, communion, joint participation, intercourse, and intimacy. Let me give you four examples in the New Testament where the word koinonia is used to describe life with God and life in the church. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Uh, Note the breaking of bread, an act of communion associated with koinonia, this word of communion. 1 Corinthians 10.16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a koinonia in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a koinonia in the body of Christ? Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect doing good and koinonia, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And then finally for 1 John 1, verse 3 and verse 7, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have koinonia with us. And indeed, our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I love how the word is used in one sentence to describe koinonia with God, koinonia with each other. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have koinonia with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So I would say it this way. I think the church is meant to offer a place of communion or common union that anticipates eternal communion with God and God's people. We immerse ourselves in the life and calling of the church, and in a spiritual sense, we intertwine our bodies in a very practical sense. We show up, we're involved, we worship together. So we intertwine our physical body with the spiritual body of the church in a way that points toward future eternal koinonia or communion with the saints and the presence of Christ. And in fact, I would also like to argue that we can be spiritually generative in this sense. We can be fruitful and multiply in a spiritual sense. And this is by making disciples. So when we talk about the procreative act in marriage in which children are born, we're fruitful and we multiply, you see this spiritually play out in churches where we go into all the world and make disciples. New life is born, and we too can be fruitful and multiply as a church in a spiritual sense. So this too is part of the koinonia, or part of the divine story. There's koinonia community, that's the church, in need of both male and female image bearers to make this full representation of God work. There's a spiritually covenantal marriage with God through salvation. 
And that anticipates our eternal marriage with God, our eternal communion with God. There's a fruitfulness that follows in the church, and that is disciple-making. So we see, in some ways, the act of sex and marriage, not only does it point toward the reality of who God is, but it also, in some sense, is an analogy for the way the church is meant to interact in terms of communing together and being generative in making disciples. All right, back to the original statement. God intends sex to be an act of covenantal initiation and renewal and a dualitarian union that points us toward the nature of God and Jesus' love for the church. So now let's talk about covenant initiation and renewal. So in biblical times, a covenant was a very strong kind of agreement between two people. It involved mutual faithfulness, it involved commitment. Often they would pledge their lives as part of the potential cost for breaking this covenant. Today we typically use language of contract. So covenant is something far more serious than we typically engage in in our culture. We talk about it with marriage but that is probably unique for the most part, at least here in the United States, in terms of thinking of covenant. And I think our experience with contracts can sometimes make us think of the marriage covenant as simply a contract. But the Bible can't be understood without the concept of covenant, and I don't think the biblical representation of marriage and of sex can be understood without the concept of covenant. This goes back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve, when they leave their parents and they cleave that oneness, that's a covenant term. So I'm going to quote Tim and Kathy Keller again from The Meaning of Marriage because I like their explanation. The covenant brings every aspect of two persons' lives together. They essentially merge into a single legal, social, and economic unit. They donate themselves wholly to the other. Sex is understood as both a sign of the personal legal union and a means to accomplish it. The Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you have given up your freedom and you have bound yourself in marriage. Then, once you have given yourself in marriage, sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. So let me summarize those three paragraphs. In the biblical narrative, sex is an act intended by God to initiate and renew a covenant called marriage that's meant to be indissoluble. Now, just to clarify, it's not as if covenants dissolve if married people can't have sex. There's age, there's illness, there's circumstances that arise. These things can all get in the way of that particular kind of covenant renewal. This doesn't suggest there are not other ways to renew and sustain or even deepen covenant. Uh, I'm just making this point about 
the role God intends for sex to have in marriage. It's intended to be experienced as an act of covenant initiation and renewal. I think you see this clearly when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 6.17, Paul says this, Do you not know that a person who is united in intimacy with a prostitute is one body with her? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, Paul wasn't trying to just pick on prostitutes here. This was an issue in the Corinthian church. He's trying to make a point. They were trying to dismiss it as if it's not a big deal. And Paul's saying, no, it is a big deal. Don't you know that a person who is united in intimacy, that is, has sex with anyone, in this case, even if it's someone who is a prostitute that you think of just kind of a transaction and a commodity rather than a relationship, you still become one body. The two become one flesh. So Paul's not saying, do you know that if you combine bodies, you'll combine bodies? I mean, that would be obvious. This one flesh is something more significant. Paul's referring back to Genesis 2.24 and Jesus' affirmation in Matthew 19. When two people cleave together, when a husband and wife cleave together, this is an act that brings oneness, and it brings oneness every time, no matter how we might want to think of it. I suspect that's why Paul says that sexual sins are unique. There's no other act that by its nature is intended by God to initiate or affirm a covenant. Uh, That was a radical idea then, and I think it's probably a radical idea now. Back to the statement. God intends sex to be an act of covenantal initiation and renewal in a dualitarian union that points us toward the nature of God and Jesus' love for the church. So let's talk about pointing us toward the nature of God and Jesus' love for the church. The New Testament writers, they kept adding layer upon layer to lots of things, and this is one of them. The claim is that the sacrificial love of a husband for his wife is supposed to image the love of God, who the Bible describes as the groom, for the bride, which the Bible describes as the church. This is why, to a Christian, sex has always been about more than just skin on skin or a social contract. In fact, John Paul described the body and sexual union as prophetic. And if you think of prophets as being people who speak for God and reveal something about God, then marriage and even marital sex is a prophetic proclamation of God's love for the church. And to Paul's audience, and I suspect to our audience as well, this idea of sex as covenant would have entirely changed the dynamic of sex between a husband and wife, but also how people thought of sexual relationships in general. So to a Christian, sex is a way of saying this, you are the one to whom or with whom I wish to bind my life. I have committed to you. I have pledged to give myself wholly to you. We're bound together in every way and on every level. We have no secrets. We are naked and unashamed. We are a covenanted union of service, sacrifice, and love. And this brings us back to where we started. God intends sex to be an act of covenantal initiation and renewal in a dualitarian union that points us toward the nature of God and Jesus' love for the church. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.